0: is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week the sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we finally read the man of steel himself, Joseph Stalin. We objectively read Dialectical and Historical Materialism, the only chapter Stalin actually wrote, for the 1938 Soviet textbook entitled "The History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union," Bolsheviks, that is. Without further ado, let's
1: uh, go full
0: diamat and explore just how close or how far Olkoba is from the Big Beards.
2: stash well, all right
3: we're live and we're talking about Stalin Yosef this Arione, Stalin <laughs> Probably the most famous Stalin text, the one that's probably been read the most, which is his Dialectical and Historical Materialism, part of the book, The Short Course.
0: Yeah, History of the Communist Party of the USSR, Bolshevik. Which was basically the official
3: manual to how to be a Marxist-Leninist given out to the populace of the Soviet Union, the pedagogical, mass educational way that Stalin tried to teach dialectical and historical materialism in the USSR. So I think it should be judged on, one, that merit, how good of a pedagogical tool for explaining dialectics is it? And then, on the other hand, how interesting and, you know, how good of an actual reading of dialectics is this?
0: I want to introduce one other dimension, which is, I want to read this quote by Cyril Smith, not the liberal Democrat uh, Kitty diddler Sir Cyril Smith, but the Marxist humanist Vail Cyril Smith in Marx at the Millennium in 1996. He calls dialectical and historical materialism one of the most widely circulated philosophical statements of the 20th century. He says, The most important thing to know about it is that its author was responsible for the murder and torture of millions of people, many of whom considered themselves to be Marxist. Although dialectical and historical materialism goes on to quote extensively from the works of Engels and Lenin, and even some of Marx, a vast, blood-filled gulf separates it from these writers. It was an obscene caricature which raised an enormous barrier to comprehending Marxist work, not just for the devotees of Stalinism, but for everybody else, too. Gives you a sense of the world historic importance of not just Stalin, but this text. My only
3: problem is that when they give the death toll, they just say millions, which doesn't really, you know, actually tell you what the death toll was, because there are historians who say that it was at most 10 million, and there's other historians who say it was like 80 million, so... It's, you know, it's I kind think- of ambiguous just to say killed millions because it's, okay, are you saying that Stalin was really as bad as Hitler here or are uh, you is- saying that Stalin was a bad guy and we shouldn't like him?
0: Donald, you know? I don't know if I'm being undialectical, but once you kill at least a million, you've hit some sort of moral event horizon where I don't really know how much more the transformation of quantity into quality applies. Wow, I didn't
2: know that Stalin could control the weather. That's yeah. crazy. That's crazy.
3: There are a lot of problems with the death counts that go into ridiculous amounts that are fueled by liberal and far right as well, political, you know, motivations. The only way I will defend Stalin is against the bourgeois historians and kind of the equivocation with Nazism full on, the exaggeration of death tolls. I think that, you know, those things should be fought against because they are generally they're just a weapon of anti-communism and you don't have to defend Stalin, the man, to defend the historical record from revisionism.
0: As they say, say, Stalin ate all the grain and paid the clouds not to rain. The one thing I'll say is that it's fair to compare the USSR to class societies of which fascism was a variety of capitalist class society and that there are similar phenomena that reappear across societies. And one of them that you do get I mean, and this is different than the mass murder of like the purges or something, right? But yeah, you get famines. Like you, you do get these sorts of things in all societies, sure, but specifically ones where people don't really have a lot of say over their lives. And Amartya Sen, famously, who's a liberal economist, I'm not going to say, not a liberal, but um, did a really great study, I think any socialist would appreciate, where basically in every famine, there was a store of grain or some kind of food somewhere, but for class reasons, it was unavailable.
3: Yeah, I've read that study as well. I think the famines that Stalin committed, Stalin's definitely responsible for those because they were a product of policies that he put in place. That people yeah, also around him who were smarter than him had warned them would happen. Right. For example, Bukharin knew mm-hmm. that if Stalin tried to do forced collectivization at gunpoint, it would lead to famines. And Stalin basically accepted that he did have a lack of moral calculus, where he was willing to say, "All right, it was six million deaths worth this amount of progress that will increase the lifespan this much." And that's also- how
1: we get to the productive forces.
2: <laughs> well, he was also just intrinsically like paranoid where he didn't trust the information that his underlings were giving them when it didn't confirm his biases. So they would give him stuff that confirmed his biases, but that just made him more suspicious. And it would create like this feedback loop of shitty information to the point where, you know, at the height of the famines, he was convincing himself that the peasants were actually hiding grain and that the cadres in the rural areas were just being pussies, basically. I think on some level, like he was deeply delusional When the results went against his own crude
4: theories. I mean, that was actually just a part of the Soviet system. Like, the way planning was done in the Soviet Union continually. The stats were completely untrustworthy as, like, they just had a hard time keeping up with them. And, like, it was a continuous problem with the five-year plans as they were, like, basically, like, ad-hocing it rather than, like, really planning it out. It was like, just put out X amount of like steel, X amount of grain, etc. Rather than like, really calculating what would be more efficient or not. So yeah, he had every right to be paranoid because people were kind of lying to him and it was just a part of the system that like, bad information was a constant thing throughout like Soviet planning. I think
3: that there is a sense to where bad information was basically endemic to the system. And so that may be maybe a material cause behind Stalin's paranoia that isn't simply just, you know, basically looking at the personality of one person because a lot well, of historians like,
2: uh, Well, there I, was a I, rational basis for everything he did. Really, there was a rational basis for the purges, even though they were extremely detrimental to the function of the government because you were killing all the competent people, but it was necessary to, for him to make sure that fresh recruits were brought in that would remain solely loyal to him in order to shore up his base of power. Right. It was instrumentally or, rational. That's
0: everything about Stalin is instrumentally rational.
2: Right. <laughs> no, it's it's really true. Or even uh, you know the early purges within the party. Like it was necessary to clamp things down if he was going to undertake his policy of forced collectivization because the proletariat was a minority class. Uh, they were uh, might they were a uh, single party, you know. So they were they'd basically be under siege, and it would be very easy for a political opportunist within the party to make concessions to the peasantry in order to win popularity and usurp him. That makes Looks sense as well.
3: Is that the conspiracy of the purges was that Bukharin and Trotsky had united with the Axis powers to overthrow the Soviet Union, and all the opposition from Bukharinists and Trotskyists, mostly you know Trotskyists, more was commonly used, was essentially part of this grand fascist conspiracy.
0: I believe that follows from Heraclitus, that Bukharin and Trotsky are in a fascist conspiracy. Just just logic.
3: Well, yeah, it's just an insane conspiracy, but so much of the public believed it, and there was an actual fascist Fraud. So, the purges did have this strange populist element to them, where they were able to get large sections of the population to actively participate and turn people in, and all kinds of awful things, and that's what's really disturbing about the purges. If you read them, is how many people genuinely believe in these insane conspiracies about Trotsky and Bukharin.
2: Yeah, there's nothing about our society right now that we can relate to that at all. You know, that's just nah. Nah. looking at it from our current. <laughs> well, honestly, historically particular.
3: I think it's more insane than the current shit with Trump in Russia and all this stuff,
2: though. I'm talking about. I'm talking about QAnon.
3: Oh, like, yeah, QAnon, like, that's, that's absolutely insane. But Like, that's, well, QAnon is
2: probably more insane than the Trotsky stuff. I mean, yeah, at least that's coming from a consistent source. Like, the QAnon thing is just people making shit up. There's not even a source of authority behind it, behind, like, whatever people want to imagine or project onto it. You
1: know? I,
0: I, I don't know. This commie Jew that started the Red Army is a secret Nazi?
2: That's pretty nuts.
1: So Stalin is equivalent to 4chan in this kind of comparison here.
2: Not that it's a contest, but at least that's a linear narrative. I mean, it zigzags a little bit,
4: but it starts you know, in one
2: place and it ends somewhere else. The current thing is just like
4: random. that the podcast like gets off track. <laughs> we're not even talking about the text that we're supposed to be talking.
0: This about. is catnip, baby. This is just to let all the Stalinist listeners that we almost reeled in that they're in the wrong
4: house. Yeah, um, like I'm what we to- read was literal garbage. An utter bastardization of Marx that reads like a high school research paper. I yeah, mean, I don't
0: think, think it was that bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go with Jake on this one and say that unfortunately, this is a, a, a pretty succinct and mostly pretty accurate summation of the Marxist philosophy of science tradition as following Engels and um, Zetkin. Uh, I forget his name. You know what I'm talking about. The guy who invented the phrase
4: that I mean the stuff on dialectics isn't bad. It's just the part on productive forces is it's just the absolute worst it's of all, like Soviet ideology.
2: It's all very crude. Right? And so some, yeah. some of it is accurate, but it's mostly very blunt. It's a very vulgar materialism. Look, I didn't
0: say that the philosophy depicted is pretty or totally accurate. I think it might be accurate in some broad strokes, but I think in general what's depicted here, that's the unfortunate thing. I actually uh, disagree with Cyril Smith a bit and that this isn't that much of a misrepresentation of at least where Angles is at. I mean, it is a slight misrepresentation. I think
2: the point that you're putting forward about productive forces are valid. Um, As you say, here's my point. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to write this in high school. I'm barely smart enough to write this now. So, you know, uh, (laughs) I'm not going to shit on the guy too much. Although, uh, it's uh, probably questionable how much of this he actually wrote, even wrote himself. He has that
0: classic writing style. Any ghost writer here would have to really be
4: finding his Stalin voice to tap into it. To be honest, while listening to the audio version, I just didn't process a good chunk of it because I was just so mind-numbingly bored. It was so repetitive. I was mind-numbingly bored by it.
3: So I feel like I didn't even fully process his ideas, but his ideas were just such a rote repetition of what people say when they try to explain Marxism drunk at the bar, and go on about dialectics, and they sound like idiots.
5: What are the main features of the proletarian revolution in the period of the decline of capitalism? the main features of the proletarian revolution in the period of the decline of capitalism is unbridled struggle against the bourgeoisie on all fronts. What do we mean when we say that the main feature of the proletarian revolution in the period of the decline of capitalism is unbridled struggle against the bourgeoisie on all fronts? when we say that the main feature of the proletarian revolution in the period of the decline of capitalism is an unbridled struggle against the bourgeoisie in France, we mean that no stone must be left unturned in unseating the bourgeoisie from its positions of power, authority and influence. When we say that the main feature of the struggle against the bourgeoisie gives the characteristic that no stone must be left unturned in the unseating of the bourgeoisie from its positions of power, authority, and influence. We mean that all cadres, all comrades, their wives, children, their pets, that everyone, the very molecules as they turn in their courses, must defiantly face the bourgeoisie and unseat them.
2: I've heard it described as liturgical. It's got a nice rhythm. There's a lot of
1: hints in this.
2: Yeah. Should we just kind of go through the text, or... Yeah, I think that would be prudent. So, uh, he basically starts off, Dialectical materialism is the world outlook of the Marxist-Leninist party. It is called dialectical materialism because its approach to the phenomenon of nature, its method of studying and apprehending them, is dialectical. While its interpretation of the phenomenon of nature, its conception of these phenomena, its theory is materialistic. Okay, you can't
4: tell me that doesn't read like a high schooler trying to summarize Marx's.
2: Okay, that's true. That is very close to the, the dictionary defines dialectical materialism as- According to Wikipedia, historical
0: materialism is the extension of the principles of dialectical materialism to the study of social life. An application of the principles of dialectical materialism to the phenomena of the life of society, to the study of society, and of its history.
5: Yeah.
2: Scholastic is the word. Yeah. So it goes on. Dialectics comes from the Greek dialegio, to discourse, to debate. Again, that's actually is actually very close to like. I see what you're saying, Rosa, about the high school thing.
3: That's what I'm trying to say. It needs to be judged on two merits. On its pedagogical ability and its ability to teach common workers dialectical and historical materialism. And its general take on dialectical materialism and how scientific and nuanced and well thought out of a description of dialectical materialism it is. And I think it basically fails at both of those. But it does better on the pedagogical side. Like, I can understand why this would be given to tons of people, but the problem is, is that it's a completely closed system. It basically tells you the answer to all these philosophical questions as if they're basically truths handed down by God. So it does read liturgically, yes.
0: If I were to create some criteria for how I would judge this text, you know, ignoring the ocean of blood for a second, turning my face from it, I would think of three things. One, is this true, accurate? Two, is this useful as ideology for a state or some kind of political formation? Three, does this represent the thought of the thinkers that it's claiming to represent accurately? Right? So, (laughs) so suspending truth for a moment, as is proper in a good bureaucracy we can clearly see the instrumental value of this text, the way it feeds into productivism. During Productivism. The third thing, at least with angles, by the time you get to anti-during and dialectics of nature, this system, you could easily level that at angles. And to the extent that one thinks Marx, had he had the chance, would have systematized in pretty much the way angles did, then... This also points at Marx. People say that Marxism is a closed system. I know what they're talking about because Marxism-Leninism exists, right? But how much of this is the fault of the big beards? And how much of this is the bastardization of the big beards? Well,
3: here's the thing, is that technically everything said in this text probably can be attributed to Marx and Engels somehow. But I think that actually doing good historical materialism or dialectical materialism, we're going to call it, requires taking into account modern scientific discoveries, taking into account modern social sciences and developing the overall system of thought in relation to new developments in thought. And so it's almost that this is a frozen in time interpretation of dialectics that hasn't actually absorbed the new developments of history and social thought and scientific thought that have happened since then.
0: I actually think the part on historical materialism contains some of the most objectionable and possibly not Marxian concepts. Maybe we should save that for the end and continue digesting his materialism.
3: Yeah, on his dialectical method, it seems that basically what he does is he just talks about Engel's famous three laws of
0: dialectics, which is a not directly.: Like he definitely bases it off of them. Like, but he, he's only uh, breaking down like a couple laws.
3: The only thing he doesn't talk about the negation of negation, but he does focus a lot on how everything is kind of connected in its totality and is in a constant state of change, even how quantitative change leads to qualitative change, and he really focuses on that in his interpretation of the productive forces.
0: I think that's pretty interesting. He ignores the negation of the negation, the third dialectical law of angles. Yeah, He focuses he just, on w- unity of opposites and uh, more is different. I like to call it more is different.
4: Which something Mao actually like goes even further than Stalin, not just to ignore negation of the negation, but to directly argue against it as a law, arguing that it was inherently conservative in its nature
3: just as a, you know, exercise. Well, the Three laws of Dialectics are the, the interconnectedness of opposites, which is basically how we explain this. I've always used the metaphor of proletariat and capital, basically, how both categories are basically antagonistic towards each other, but the reproduction is based on the reproduction of the other categories. So the proletariat is, you know, a product of capital, but capital is also a product of, it can only happen with the proletariat. But at the same time, these two forces are kind of at odds with each other.
1: Mutually constitutive.
3: Yeah, they're mutually constitutive, essentially. Yeah, I like explaining it that way more so. It's kind of a feedback loop between the two.
0: On the one hand, there's there's semiotic interdependence. These things rely on each other for meaning. It's a basic statement of structuralism. On the other hand, to suggest that opposites are, like, flowing into each other in this flux-like way creates a, yeah, an unstable universe.
3: I think Bukharin actually does a really good job with this, with the idea of equilibrium theory, where he almost replaces dialectics as a whole with equilibrium theory in his historical materialism book, which is just thousands of times better than this. But uh, basically, the idea is that you basically have a a kind of contradiction in the system's material reproduction that either leads it away from or towards equilibrium. It never meets like a perfect equilibrium, but it either tends towards or moves away from an equilibrium. The next law of dialectics uh, is quantitative to qualitative, I think.
0: The transformation of quantity into quality. Yeah. Uh, This was summarized in 1972 by physicist PW Anderson as more is different. And this is probably the most scientifically respectable insight in the entire dialectical tradition. Basically, the idea is that when you get a lot of something, the whole dynamic can shift and you're dealing with a different level of analysis with its own dynamics. And the funny thing is that if you really take this principle seriously, and Helena Sheehan in her book gets into this, then it violates the idea of universal laws.
1: I don't know. I think it's just trying to capture that systems have emergent properties in a way. Precisely. Once you reach a certain threshold, I think Stalin in this text does the whole water reaches its boiling point or freezes, you know, that is the action of individual molecules is building. And then eventually it's so many that you change from quantity to quality. It's it's a qualitative change. So, I mean, we learned this in, in middle school science class too, in a way.
3: Well, there's a the whole idea of uh, punctuated equilibrium that there are basically in evolution. There's points where there's basically ruptures, essentially at a certain level of qualitative, eventually transfers into the, the, a quantitative change, eventually creates a rupture and creates entirely new um, species. I think. I mean, I might be butchering the concept, but essentially, I think with how Stalin uses it is he basically goes on to argue that once the productive forces have reached a certain quantitative level, then there's a qualitative change in the relations of production, which allows for development in communism, which is, I think, kind of a a poor use of that metaphor.
0: See, the thing is that he gets dialectical materialism, whatever you want to call the whole Marxist, Engelsist, like, you know, philosophy of science. That's the part he is like remarkably consistent on what grant was referring to is stalin quoting uh, a passage of angles where he talks about the phase change from liquid to gas as the transformation of quantity of temperature to quality the, the phase change
3: i think one way you could look at it is maybe once a certain percentage of a um, nation state becomes proletarianized. Then there's a qualitative change in, you know, the dominating relations of production, maybe in the laws of motion of capital.
0: Comrade, comrade, we need to go to the broader level of generality. You're being very one-sided right now. History is important, yes, but dialectical materialism, comrade, is a is a worldview. Well, oh, that's my problem.
3: Is entirely. An abstract, a priori system of thought is presented here. There's no flow from the abstract to the concrete, as if like you get in Marx. There isn't that dialectic between abstractions that are developed by analyzing the concrete and then using those abstractions to further study the concrete. There's none of that real nuance and good Marxist thought that you find here. And so it fails on that level as well. But on a pedagogical (laughs) level, I think it also fails as well doesn't talk about why dialectical materialism would really matter to anyone
0: i think that's not true he specifically says in later sections that dialectical materialism applied his historical materialism and historical materialism has a direct impact on policy and on politics like he i think he makes that clear he
2: basically basically claims 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 we about
1: what's good for the party that's very true lexi
2: I think he imagines these abstractions as like a series of basic formulas you can hand down to party functionaries and so on and so forth that they can use to make policy that will be based on a quote unquote like real scientific understanding of history and society and not on abstract like eternal ideals like you know justice or liberty or the rights of man etc cetera, etc. Cetera. He wants to basically create like a system that is essentially completely, like, non-moral, but is instead scientific.
3: Yeah, that's true, is that there's a political motive here as well, I think, to justify the industrialization drives. And I think that a lot of this is put down to explain, oh, well, comrade, you know, you may be suffering so much right now because of rations going down in order to create more of a surplus to build another city or whatever, but it's all worth it because we're developing the productive forces, and this will eventually lead to communism if we just keep working harder and harder
2: right it's also useful for like you know the suppression of quote-unquote rights because you know again it, it, what's important here is the scientific understanding and application of history and yeah. not any kind of like abstract eternal principles or whatever
4: yeah the best part of this is where he tries to argue that slavery was a historical necessity <laughs> Which is pretty pretty interesting, given, like, gulags and the whole thing with that. So, um... Well, yeah, yeah he says
3: that slavery was progressive compared to primitive communism because, you know, it creates a surplus, which allows civilization to develop. So gulag so,
2: so is objectively more progressive than the mere. <laughs>
3: but <laughs> but been, you asked the question, though, so Stalin's saying slavery was justified, so therefore were slave revolts not justified during this period of time until eventually feudalism developed? And obviously, a lot of the dynamism of history in that period is
0: caused through slave revolts. Comrade, we could definitely aim all this at Stalin, but we also would aim it at a lot of classical Marxists.
3: Even Kotsky does a better job at this, though, by interspersing it with actual examples from the real world and then further extrapolating from those. Seriously,
2: like Stalin doesn't understand what science is, okay? Stalin's idea of science is literally that hell yes yeah science bitch meme. So you do have a plan? Yes, yeah, science! You know what I mean? This is like a liturgical understanding. He's basically just taken like Marxism, turned it into a dogma. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. We can attack his idea of materialism because I think it,
0: what you're saying gets at the heart of that. I think it's worth noting that Stalin, like many Marxists, is so intent on the fundamental scrutability of the world and opposing a kind of idealism that Marx was encountering in German philosophy and uh, that one might encounter with liberals in everyday politics, they unwittingly embraced a different idealism. So the idealism they were fighting was the one of Plato, where there's like a realm of perfect ideas and forms. But the alternative to that in traditional, like classical Greek philosophy was Aristotle. Aristotle has this idea that you can grasp the essence of something that is maybe secretly idealist. And so when... He's claiming to be able to read the laws of nature and the laws of historical development. He has a very like Aristotelian grasp of the essential contradictions of these things that drive it forward. I don't want to call it totally idealist because it's coming from Aristotle, the great materialist of ancient Greece. But there is something fundamentally suspect about that kind of materialism.
5: Well,
2: it's also this idea where he basically claims that these scientific insights are clear and hard truths, or I forget the exact term he used, but he basically almost seemed to claim that they were like absolute knowledge, whereas science is constantly subject to revision, and I think everyone's kind of accepted that anything that you get is just going to be a sort of approximation of understanding of the actual world there's a horizon limit to human understanding but he's like oh no science is a thing where it's like it just builds one thing after the next and gravity we've settled all that shit we got that shit down so it's locked under control movement of the planets we locked that shit down that's under control we know that whereas you know the measurement system for these things have been constantly revised and changed throughout the development of science he does have like a weirdly like idealist conception of Scientific understanding in the early 20th century. That
0: aspect there is where there maybe is a difference between him and Engels, because even though Engels has some of this closed systemness and I don't know, thinks he can prove there's no God and that the universe is eternal and shit like that, like there is a sense that there's a historical horizon for science. And I think maybe that we can lay this at the feet of, to my knowledge, Lenin. Lenin is pretty bad on this. Marxism is objective, because it is true. No, the, no, that, the, that, the radical that, objectivity of matter. Is awesome. To Lenin. We shouldn't just disclose the idea of an
3: objective reality, even if there's limits to how perfectly we can understand its inner essence and the inner laws of motion that are governing everything. Obviously, there's huge limits to that. I think what Stalin kind of gets wrong is in way he thinks that if you apply this set of dogmas to studying something, you'll come up with the correct truth. Whereas science is really a collective process where different people may do experiments, come up with data, and then through the the collective process of scientists discussing these experiments come to a general social consensus about what is considered objectively true science. And so Stalin doesn't really have an understanding of how One arrives at truth, he just asserts truth.
2: This is something he kind of like inherited from Lenin because Lenin really did run the Bolshevik party as like a theoretician. And he did kind of use his sort of theoretical authority as a way to like translate into like actual authority politically within the party. And Stalin wants to do this too, but he's not as smart as Lenin or even most of the other people in the party. So what Stalin has to do is he basically has to kill everybody who's smarter than him. And funny enough, what ended up happening was, because this thing was written for the short course, right? The famous short course. And he basically gave it to all the party functionaries of that time in 1938. And they basically kind of very sheepishly began to complain to him that they couldn't understand this. It didn't make any sense to them. They had no basis with which to grasp what he was telling them. Now, I read this thing. I didn't agree with parts of it, but I basically understood what he was arguing. I mean, it'd be pretty hard not to. So think about like the intellectual level in the bolshevik party in 1930 at this point that nobody could understand what the fuck he was talking about because this was too advanced for them
3: well think about it this was a period where all of the old functionaries were being purged and new people fresh from the countryside because the soviet union wanted to brag about its social mobility and so people fresh out of the countryside who were basically hicks or whatever before then <laughs> are all of a sudden given important positions and administration sometimes. And so you have a very superstitious population as well. You know, religious superstition didn't just die away after 1917, obviously. People still held on to it. And the peasant way of life was still in the process of being destroyed. And so you did have basically this system of fresh new peasant recruits who are basically becoming literate through reading this stuff, probably.
0: I think it's pretty important that in an objective sense, the point of this text is not communication. It is the transformation of Marxism, the codification of Marxism into a tool of class domination. There is so much jargon in this text. It's not that it's unnecessary. It's just, it's cobbled from the Marxist tradition. And people always think it's dumbing it down to change words or to, or to try to break down the concepts and words to smaller phrases. But like, if you're teaching peasants from the countryside dialectics, there's just no reason to use the larger words. <laughs> like,
3: it's, that's what I was saying about it failing pedagogically, though, in the sense of a teaching material It doesn't actually explain why dialectics is relevant, give real-life examples of why dialectics might be true, try to basically make dialectics, explain the dynamics of class struggle and international politics through dialectics. It doesn't actually do anything to show why the system of immortal science might actually be of interest to you. It just lays out what the truth is in this closed-system way. Whereas the better Marxists, they use dialectics as a method to examine the concrete
1: right you don't come out of reading this as a more critical thinker and i think that is something we really have to evaluate it on whether you're familiar with marxism or you're not familiar with marxism either way it just doesn't do anything to advance the project
2: you know like you want people who are just smart enough to understand it but just dumb enough to be dumber than him you know like that's, right,
1: you're not supposed to use this to, like, think freely about the world. That would kind of disrupt the whole political system in place.
0: It's disturbing that he can get a lot right and do this. It's disturbing that, as an ideological document, it can be so Marxist. There's a reason that we didn't label this in the enemy camp, right? Even though all of us—sorry, listeners— pretty repelled to Stalin and the legacy of Stalin. But we have to maybe own this disastrous tradition. It's not ours in the sense that this is our you know red thread Russian tradition. It's not like that. It's just that if we want to take up the mantle communist, it doesn't matter if we drop the hammer and sickle, drop red, drop this, drop that, drop all the aesthetics and try to look completely different. Nothing will change that we still have a goal called communism and that this magic mustache ride guy destroyed the reputation of communism uh, historically.
4: Really, I, I think we should stress the relevance of this and particularly the latter part of it, the latter part where he goes into his conception of historical materialism and how yeah. it's focused on developing productive forces as that would be the basis of dangism, essentially. Because dangism, I mean, that sort of like mindset of like the chinese communist party after mao was completely about like building a productive forces through foreign investments and like a turn to like limited market economics within china after like mao sort of had like an internal challenging of stalin what went down with Mao on the level of theory though it's debatable whether or not he really really challenged Stalin in terms of like Stalin's like style of rule
3: well on the topic of the productive forces I would kind of like to just focus on this for a little bit I think that there is an element of truth to the idea that the development of the productive forces Determines the possibilities upon which you can have a liberated society. Oh, that's absolutely true Yeah, yeah, and I think that the thing is Russia did not have the development of productive forces to become a liberated society and It's development of productive forces was so far behind that it was still essentially Semi-feudal or even feudal whatever you want to call it. You still had a huge peasant countryside And so this is basically Marxism deployed as a way for uh, a state-led primitive accumulation campaign. And the idea is that the only real measure of progress is the development of productive forces. And so as long as the productive forces are more efficiently being developed, society is more progressive. And it almost is a way to instill a Marxist work ethic, if you think about it.
0: It's not just saying that the productive forces open the horizons, because people that talk to me regularly know that I'm a defender of the analytical Marxist G.A. Cohen and his reconstruction of historical materialism. Right after his big famous book, he revised his model of historical materialism uh, to account for this. The determination of the productive forces is a certain character it's not a one-to-one unilineal determination it's not that like once you get to you know 50 productive forces points you go to slavery and if you get 200 productive forces points then you get to capitalism the point would be a change in the horizons and stalin isn't just making that argument stalin is making an argument yes, that exactly. maybe- if you pile up the productive forces shit just gets free and yeah, exactly. while you can clearly see that geographical locations or population doesn't determine the level of economic advancement, just look at, uh, you know, United States and uh, Belgium, or, or, you know, or whatever. Forget exactly the example he uses, but the point is, is that if you actually do that with technological development, you will see that this also does not apply. And this is the version of historical materialism that whenever I was trying to talk about the abstract theory, the one that G.A. Cohen even defends in his unrevised version, or even the one that Engels articulates, and he does use the phrase historical materialism, this is why I could never have that conversation because of the political terrain here. It's worth reflecting on. It's difficult to have an honest conversation about the role of the productive forces And even the role of the instruments of production, which Stalin is so specific. He's like, just in case you're thinking by productive forces, I'm really concentrating on labor power and the creative potentials of humankind. No, 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 no. I mean tech.
3: Yes, exactly. I was going to say, first of all, he has a view of the productive forces that is basically the stereotypical idea of what productive forces are, which is literally just how productive technology is. It's not looking at the nature of labor, how labor is organized. It's not looking at the utilization of science in the production process and all these different other factors. It's basically just raw technological advancement. On uh, Rose's point about Mao, I think where you see a divergence with Mao is kind of with the Althusserian idea that the productive forces uh, is basically the main thing that stalin gets wrong and really productive forces don't matter what really matters are relations of production and so i mean I, I don't know how much Mao fully develops this idea to the point that althusser does but what stalin got wrong was more so that he didn't try to truly change relations of production to communism something like that i don't know what kind of political conclusion that would But basically, they're trying to say that it really doesn't matter what the productive forces are. And this whole idea that the productive forces even determine the horizons of change is kind of a slavery to productivist, you know, almost Eurocentric ideology.
0: It's a very compelling argument against this, especially because of the historical ideological role of this productive forces argument it's a very compelling antagonist it's a good punching bag the problem is that you want to be wrong and in this walking straw man that is stalin you know it is wrong
3: but the thing is that in its attempt to disprove the importance of productive forces it simply just creates an idealist volunteerism that basically reduces revolution to a matter of will And that's where you get crazy Shining Path style Maoism.
4: Probably leads to the Cultural Revolution. It's just the horrors of that. Just like Red Guard students going around just like torturing random people. And that would continue on through Maoism with like the Shining Path being like, again, students going around randomly torturing and killing people students doing that seems to be like a running theme through any like Mao tinged ideology. Yeah, but
0: straight up, this is just inherent to Leninism. When Gramsci says that the Bolshevik revolution is a revolution against Das Kapital, like there's supposed to be some historical law, especially as it comes to be under Stalin, where they attempt socialism in one country. Like, that's not possible in a Marxist sense. And if you're uh, an early Bolshevik, the Marxist thing to do is see if other revolutions happen. If those other revolutions don't happen. You kind of know you don't stand a chance. Like, I don't know what to do with that situation, but that would be the historical materialist conclusion.
3: I, I think Lenin was basically to actually pretty in line with orthodox Marxist thought at the time, even... Because in 1909, Kosky's own road to power concludes on the idea of capitalism's inherent contradictions leading to a huge imperialist war that will signal its downfall and it will be time for revolution. And you know Lenin basically saw the situation of the war that there were mass mutinies happening, and the revolution in Russia might, you know, be the weak link that breaks the chain of the capitalist system. So I don't really think that he was making this argument that you can just go into communism through political will, through just changing the relations of production, regardless of the forces of production.
0: Lenin no, Leninism. Does tend towards that.
3: Well, Maoism, especially in the way it gets like with the Maoists or obsession with violence, it almost becomes your willingness to commit violent acts in the name of the proletariat is what defines how revolutionary you are, which is just absurd, death cult type shit. But between Stalin's ultra productive forces determinism and then on the other hand, sort of Maoist Althusserian primacy of the relations of production, there has to be a, like a middle ground that doesn't really make one of a total cause behind everything, but also understands how productive forces and their development changes horizons.
5: I
0: keep Apologies. telling people to read GA Cohen, but you know, no one ever does it like, and more importantly, the people that were responding like, to G. G. Cohen that today. Really? Yes. It's happening. Wow. Well, color me impressed, Grant. Anyway, um, so where, where are we at this text right now? we're on the part about historical historical materialism it's really funny to see these anti you know great man theory of history arguments coming out of stalin stalin probably as an individual had more concentrated power than any human being in, in history and he is up there saying yeah it's not made by great men people it's uh um, i'm not an, i'm not steering this boat by the way i'm killing off all the generals and all the lead intellectuals and but you know what history is yeah, not made by great men that's just not oh, how it
2: works he was he was just fulfilling the process of history though well
0: right, right yeah he was simply an incarnation
2: he was just an instrument of god's plan
0: yeah so i think this is the ultimate fucking reducto ad absurdum for this er structuralist way of looking at history people matter the fact that this particular sociopath murdered his way through the bolshevik party does matter and did change the course of the soviet union there's so much determination going on geologically and economically and politically but uh, ultimately agency does matter character does matter ideas do matter
4: i guess you can argue he was sort of like the bonaparte trotsky like yeah refers to him as bonapartist so yeah, explicitly like,
0: adapting a term from Marx, the 18th premiere
4: yeah like people can matter in history individuals but usually they're like a pimple essentially in history there's these social forces just like under the skin of history just pushing up pushing up and it just all leads to this ugly white head Popping up, and Stalin is that pimple on the ass of history. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, but seriously, though, there is the question if maybe Bukharin or Trotsky had succeeded rather than Stalin. What really the the viable kind of situation is Bukharin and Trotsky actually unite and basically come to an agreement on industrialization, not being too fast, and maintaining the NEP and doing things inside the NEP. And not abolishing that, but also you know, maybe conceding the Trotsky on, you know, how we need to endorse world revolution more and we need more party democracy. And so it's imaginable that what if they had come into power instead and tried to reform the system? Would they have just inevitably failed, or was there hope that maybe if they had reformed the system, the Soviet Union could have still been a revolutionary force by the time the next World War happened. It's interesting, alternate history to think about really, because it does ask that question, how much was Stalin's personality and agency a factor in determining how things went?
0: All across Marxism, I feel like people don't really embrace that nausea. From this text to fucking endnotes, all of them avoid the absurd tragedy of choice and that things could have gone differently.
3: Lucian Goldman is a Marxist philosopher Who really does kind of seem to accept the role of wagers and uncertainty in history and how, in the end, we still are kind of acting on faith, even if it's been embedded with reason. And we are acting on what we understand to be rational and scientific. We're still acting on faith in, in some degree.
4: Yeah, it's basically like a denial of the political in history, the role of politics in history completely. Like, just gut politics out to being secondary to, like, development of productive forces or just, like, anything like that. Or denying the possibility that Stalin was an important political figure. It's just a denial of, like, political struggle as something that's inherently important to understanding history as a whole, I think.
0: Yeah, there's caprice in choice that matters. There's a thought experiment that I like from G.A. Cohen. That's something along the lines of economic forces might have determined many parts of Judaism, for instance, as a religion, because it's ideology. And There's a lot of it that's going to serve the mode of production material base. However, the number of candles on the menorah, right? That's not functional to the material base. That's something more arbitrary in history. That stands to reason.
1: I think we can argue about Trotsky and Bukharin. I would have to agree that that at least what would have happened if they had succeeded Lenin rather than Stalin is that something that sullied the name of communism less would have come of that. But I have to imagine that by that point, without the injection of some kind of mass proletarian something. Well, I mean, there were a series of revolutionary waves throughout that period. all, all All that was happening, every single development in Soviet life really... Seemed to be happening within the political sphere. And there was absolutely no mass activity involved in this revolution at this point. So even if you found something that could have held out from that point, even if you could have had the new economic program and party democracy... I don't know that that would have seen necessarily a reinjection of revolutionary spirit in, into the whole well, project. In under a,
4: Stalin there society, was there was actually a social move. It was the purge yeah, there was
3: a lot of enthusiasm from below for Stalin. Like a lot of it workers would, were really into it.
4: Yeah, they were enthusiastic about the purges, and like under Mao, they were enthusiastic about the Cultural Revolution. I, I wouldn't under
1: well, this, we're at the time social movement, I, and I wasn't really talking about just anything. I, I meant that you would need mass democracy, not party democracy. I mean, you would need to be taking action against the state.
2: Well, there were a series of world revolutionary waves going on around that time, you know, France, England, China, you know, that the common term under Stalin mostly had a deleterious influence on. So, you know, feasibly like there could have been like a wider world revolutionary wave that you know could have served to link up with russia in a more useful way than what happened you know you wouldn't have had say like the spanish revolution just be a way for stalin to loot their gold and sell them junk spare parts essentially you know like yeah
1: i agree with that sure
2: There's like a broader wave of potentialities but the basic like material bind that the soviet union was in wasn't something that stalin created and you know the longer they would have been forced to hold out you know they were basically on a collision course with disaster maybe the disaster wouldn't have been as bad but you know it still wouldn't have been good (laughs) unless again imagine in the spanish civil war instead of basically just trying to form bourgeois
3: republic the common turn instead like actually proposed, like turning the Spanish Civil War into a, a worldwide war of all communists against reaction. Sent the Red Army into Germany to overthrow Hitler and set, <laughs> you know, a, a series of strike waves and mass action against the capitalist class into a play. And <laughs> I think that mm. there is some agency in history, but at the uh-huh. same time.
0: That sounds kind it's, of
4: dope. there's competing economic in terms. It of sounds power. it sounds cool, but I think Russia would end up losing.
2: Russia Probably. might lose, but the world
4: proletariat could win, man. <laughs> no, no, no. You would basically have like the allies on the side of the Axis against the Soviet <laughs> Union. They already almost <clears throat> lost when it was just Germany facing off against the Soviet Union. So trying to imagine that, but with the United States on the side of. Germany that would be kind of a horrific massacre and I wouldn't want to think about like the amount of lives well, that would the be the problem the they Slavic put- race wouldn't exist let's put oh, Jesus Christ well, well basically this brother- is the problem is that the common
3: turn wasn't enough of a mass party worldwide for that to be pulled off and so essentially all its only use to the Soviet Union was to basically promote Soviet foreign policy interests within the capitalist world system. That's really what socialism in one country was all about. A change in foreign policy in favor of internal development away from international revolution. So basically, international policy becomes completely subject to the needs of internal Soviet development. And so, the Comintern basically has the third period where they take up the ultra-left line, but then it has the Popular Front, which is basically an alliance with colonialism in order to win support from the bourgeoisie to make an anti-fascist alliance. And then there's just a complete change over to, you know, the Hitler-Stalin pact, where all of a sudden Britain is the main enemy, and the main imperialist power, and Germany is actually not as bad. So I think if you had different leadership, perhaps the way the flow of events happened might have been dealt with more intelligently. Because you really did have a complete gutting of all the good leaders and intelligent communists.
0: Hey, if they launched an invasion of Germany in 1933, it would have been before the purges. And so they would have been Bolshevik revolution tested super soldiers. And they would have been able to defeat all comers like Stephen Segal.
2: Well, and also like imagine if you know, say like the Chinese Communist Party hadn't been massacred by Chiang Kai-shek. Like, imagine there's a lot of other factors at play here too, you know?
3: So that's yeah. why I'm weary of saying that Stalinism was just natural result of the world revolution failing in 1919 or whatever. I think that basically there is a little bit more agency and that the Comintern could have played its cards a little bit more intelligently and had a better strategy. And Things could have possibly gone differently in Russia if people had different strategies. So it really comes down to the question of how much politics matters.
1: Well, we've come up with a great Command and Conquer campaign.
0: Comrade, it appears we have overestimated the cowardice of our European neighbors. It seems the French gathered together with the German army along the Polish
5: border. But these fools have left their homelands exposed. Show them the meaning of Soviet irony. Invade Paris and use our Tesla technology to short-circuit their plans. Leave nothing. <laughs>
0: I would want to play that game. I do want to play, like, you know, Theory of the Offensive. Stalin was reading old leftcom documents and says, you know, I think because we're entering a third period here, it's, uh, it's go time. Let's strangle fascism in its cradle. Let's go full Jeb Bush.
3: Honestly, I think the Austrian communists did it best against the fascists, even though they lost. They united with the Social Democrats, and they fought to the very last roll. So it was an actual example of the Workers' United Front in action. The left-comm line wasn't really the right line. I think it was probably something closer to what Paul Levi and Clara Zetkin were for, which was basically the German Communist Party, the KPD, the most you know important party in the common term, arguably, its highest periods of growth were when it was working in a united front with the Social Democrats and struggling for reformist demands often, but w- alongside them and winning their support over to the Communist Party and so that policy of united front of uniting with other workers organizations even if they're reformists and right wing in order to win basic gains and through that you kind of build hegemony in the working class and show that the communist party represents the interests of the workers more than the social democrats i think that strategy when they were actually using that strategy the communist party had the most growth and success but when they kind of took up the theory of the offensive model that, you know, we just need to basically go on full insurrection immediately and break the union movement and, you know, form Soviets. It was when they had those policies that the Comintern really kind of fucked up. <laughs> wow.
0: Well, we've really embraced our historical agency by going way off the text. I appreciate this. I mean, this is just as much an
3: excuse just to talk about Stalin because this text is pretty threadbare <laughs> as far as interesting stuff.
0: We could talk about types of production relations, the schema. When you get to level two... What is the schema he has
3: for production relations again?
0: So a primitive communal, slave, feudal, capitalist, socialist.
3: I don't know. There is an element of truth to the fact that you have societies based on slavery because the state is based on taking slaves as a main labor force. And that this society develops out of the inability of the primitive communist tribe essentially to reproduce in the face of the difficulties of nature. And so essentially, the first and general form of class domination is basically like slavery. I can kind of see that making sense, but it would have to be put up against the actual anthropological data. And it's also the fact that not all societies might have the same logic of development. So. There's just a lot of assumptions with that model that I think are wrong, and I wouldn't die on its till,
0: especially the universality of feudalism is suspect. There are different forms of slavery. there are different kinds of like foraging bands and stuff. There are agrarian economies that aren't really slavery and aren't you know really forager societies that I guess you could still call communal.
2: Well, to uh, his credit, he does say the five main types. Which would make allotment for variations, kind of like the broad categories, I guess, according to Stalin.
3: All right. I mean, if we wanted to go with broad categories, you could just say primitive communism, tributary capitalism, and then communism.
0: Define tributary. This is from Banaji, yeah?
3: Yeah, I mean, just it's from other scholars like Haldon. And it's just the general idea that the, the main relation of exploitation is basically the form through a form of tribute taking against the uh, will of the producers through political violent force. And most pre-capitalist societies are just different variations of this general tribute relation between the producer and the the, uh, the politically dominant caste or class.
0: So this sort of collapses slave and feudal into a, a general category. Is that?
3: Well, it says that no. there's no slave mode of production. Slavery is just something that happens alongside of a tributary mode of production. Because their argument is that even if there's slavery in these societies, the main mode of production is not through slavery, but through like private landholding and self reproduction of the household and Hmm. Well, stuff like that and you have an aristocracy or a higher caste that takes tribute from the direct
2: producers via their political power and patronage so this section kind of like all the sections I mean it's more right than wrong it's a very crude very vulgar version of Marxism right if you were trying to explain Marxism to someone in a bar like your story might sound kind of like this (laughs) but that's exactly kind of the problem with it is that it's it's limited that way and it's actually not phrased that bad like if you read it closely like there are a lot of outs there like for instance like where he says there's five main types of production like there's a lot of things in here where he is basically accurate in his explanation but the problem is it's presented as wisdom handed down from on high honestly in a weird way it's not dialectical enough air it's not an open system that can be set up as, like, the basis for something that's going to evolve and change. Like, this is basically doctrine, essentially. So, what do you think, people? How do you feel about reading Stalin? The best parts are where he quotes other people. The ad-length quotes from Marx and Engels are probably the most interesting.
3: Like, oh, that's I what I mostly enjoyed in this text, was the quotes by Marx and Engels. and
2: um... It does suck, though, because the way he quotes them, it always follows with, like, yeah, see? The last part of it is, like, this long quote from a contribution to critique of political economy and then he just has two sentences after that such is marxist materialism as applies to social life to the history of society such are the principal features of dialectical and historical materialism he sounds like yule brenner in the 10 commandments so shall it be written so shall it be done that's his appeal to authority that's why stalin was effective
0: he was trained in a seminary <laughs> Trotsky, you know, made himself out to be a great figure. Stalin would often just say, I am but a student, a student of Lenin, a student of Engels, a student of Marx. student
3: of the people. There's definitely a demagogic popular aspect of Stalinism, but I imagine this text was probably used more so to give the feeling of indoctrinating all of the bureaucrats and having them all be proper Marxists and having an easy way to explain this is what you have to believe to be a marxist leninist. And that's why it's still used today by like maoist and marxist leninist groups. Compared to Trotsky's ABCs of dialectics, that's a way better text and it's way shorter too, but it's way more interesting and explanatory.
0: Do we overall disagree with what Stalin is saying? And that this just pains me to ask. On what specific point do we agree? Because he I say overall more- I think that there is a
3: systematic way of thinking about the world, which is, you know, basically materialist and is dialectic in the sense that, you know, understands
4: that history has a dynamism to it and is, you know, isn't just a gradual linear growth i would challenge that honestly because like the emphasis on productive forces basically allows for it to be obsessed with like technological growth and economic growth and it becomes like an ideology of the party implementing like first force industrialization and then like a slow gradual shift to capitalism
3: i'm not against the idea of marxism as a total system of thought in a total kind of integral way of looking at all aspects of not just society, but also even nature and science. And I think that Stalin fails at doing this, ultimately. He does try to give, like, the universal science of everything, but he just fails at it. So that's what really dialectics is supposed to be.
0: Is well, it pro- supposed to be? A universal science. I think this is where Engels really does have a difference from Marx. Engels and anti-During makes a systematic response to During, who himself was doing basically metaphysics and making a more systematic philosophy of science. And that's what causes Engels to systematize the way he does. I, Marx, you know, wrote off on anti-During. Sure, but he would never write it. He did write one but, chapter. I think, you know, they had different
3: roles in the development of Marxism, but they have to be looked at as Marx was really good at critiquing stuff and Engels was more of a systematizer.
0: The thing about yeah. dialectics is it's kind of about how the form and the content of logic, how there's slippage between the categories, and how at some point you'll have to argue for methodological premises. And this is intention systematizing in a lawful way. If you believe that form and content, there's not like a line there.
2: It's very hard to make formal laws. That's a Hegelian pushback on angles. I'm going to say this. I mean, he does make some correct assertions here and characterizations of things. I think that he overestimates the extent to which we can really formalize these things into laws the extent to which that analysis of society and history can be a hard science. He seems to think here that it's science the same way physics or chemistry is science, and it just isn't. He even articulates a
0: verificationist philosophy of science. Not falsification, but verification. If it lines up with your theory, then it's proven. Then it's knowledge. It's objective certain knowledge.
3: Then you can just have a set of propositions that are abstract enough that you can always find examples for. Whereas science is obviously more complex than that, at least how Stalin is doing it. And I think Marxism really should look at science because even if Marxism can't be as hard science as chemistry or physics, doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't have the rigor of science right. and be as rational as possible.
2: But you have to have a certain level of humility and understand there aren't these like hard, immutable laws of history. It's not the same fucking thing. I guess if you're looking to uh, do some crazy shit like, you know, forcibly collectivize the peasantry, there must be some reassurance in the idea that there are hard laws of history that you're just fulfilling, you know? Yeah, because you have a
0: mathematical standard of truth that is being met for history. So you just know.
3: Is it not universal laws the history? For example, the human species has to reproduce itself, and it has to do this through productive forces. Even if those productive forces are within a hunter-gatherer society, they still have to make a metabolism with nature in order to reproduce as a species at a level that's more advanced than other species. And so... There is a kind yeah. of constant law, almost, of human societies that there's determined conditions of reproduction for the human species based on its metabolism of nature.
0: I wasn't actually bringing up that distinction to uh, argue against universal laws. I-, I was actually sort of arguing in favor, maybe even in history. There are certain facets of history that more than rhyme, that seem to betray some kind of structure that calls out for modeling and that people I mean, can
4: try to model. I would push against the distinction between hard and soft sciences, not just a Kantian thing, but something that's, like, pushed by, like, Austrian school economists because, like, humans have free will and therefore you can't predict anything about them. And it's just a really bad concept. I'm just going to put it out there, like, having this distinction between hard and soft sciences is just really, really bad concept and, like, fits into a whole bunch of philosophically problematic things, like the continuing specialization of sciences.
0: I don't really know how you characterize the difference between the levels of certainty you can get in physics and the levels of certainty you get in sociology the lawfulness of physics versus the lawfulness of sociology. I don't know how you characterize that. Like perhaps um, it's more of a spectrum than using a binary like hard and soft science suggests. I wasn't even going to include history in this because in this English usage of science, you usually don't think of history as a science.
3: For a historical event or general category, just some kind of historical product. You have, you know, different competing narratives by historians on how to explain that historical event or that historical entity. And I think that basically you can come down to who has the best explanatory narratives and try to come to a
2: general consensus through that in order to understand history. Like you can't conduct controlled experiments to determine. That's the problem,
3: yeah, there's an inherent epistemological problem with that. But at the same time, you're still trying to be as scientific as possible and look at which narratives of history are the most explanatory and match up empirically with everything and represent basically objective reality.
0: And it's there that I think some of the worst excesses of bourgeois mathematical logical fetish modeling can actually be kind of useful. And in the sense of discovering the universal laws of historical development, you know, if you're paying attention to game theory right now, it's kind of exciting. If you really think that it's possible to model these things, like there are people trying to do it. Now, a lot of them are, you know, reactionary or otherwise blinkered by ideology,
2: but people are trying to do these things. Just it's usually not Marxist now. Well, there's lots of people trying to crack cold fusion, too. You know what I mean? Like people <laughs> trying to do a lot of shit. I mean, there's a different like epistemological standards that you have in different like fields. And what I'm saying is like Stalin almost doesn't seem to understand that here. And he just kind of yes. like lumps everything all together into like these like iron laws. There's a lot of like assertions here that like can't be proven or that are still kind of fuzzy. And you know what I mean? I don't know. No, no, no. we're not talking Rand Corporation here, I get it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, personally for me, the way I've got dialectics is that it's just a kind of useful heuristic for thinking about history that kind of lets you escape the dualistic binary of formal logic and lets you capture the complexities of transition and emergent properties, how social relations act behind the backs of people to create limits to agency. There's all kinds of useful ways of thinking about history through, like, the materialist dialectic or whatever you want to call
4: it. Right. I'm actually thinking about looking into complex systems theory because there seems to be a lot of parallels between that and, like, dialectics with, like, feedback loops and that sort of thing. Emphasis on, like, looking at things as totality and, like, a larger system and different levels of system that can be looked at on an individual level for each one. But rather, it has to be thought of in a totality. So yeah. there's some interesting parallels from I'm, what I think- can tell between complex systems theory and dialectical materialism.
2: I'm thinking about looking into cold fusion.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this thought has <laughs>
2: so, really convinced me. Yeah. I think what we really need is like some forces of production <laughs> determinism. And if I could just crack cold fusion, I feel like that would solve all of our energy problems and bring us forward into communism. Uh, but I, yeah. I, th-
3: I think you're bearing Honestly, the lead, that is, a log- that is a logical argument, according to this text, if you think about it.
0: I think you're all burying the lead that Rose is getting at, is that dialectical materialism kind of, kind of won. Not in details, but in essence. In the broadest strokes, what Stalin articulates here is dialectics. In the first section, more or less, has been incorporated into the general philosophy of science. That more is definitely than, true. more so than anything that Marx, Engels, or Lenin wrote, as you know, influential as they are. This text specifically is approximately responsible for that.
3: I don't know. I think that there were
0: other Soviet philosophers, like none of them are going to be well, as widely read as this.
3: Yes, Dialectics One, but Stalin here is giving a very poor rendition of Dialectics. Because I do agree that basically all of these general principles of dialectics have been incorporated into modern philosophy of science. But the problem is that you don't have this interaction between Marxism and philosophy of science and science. Because even, for example, in Lenin's classic text that kind of got taken up as the orthodox interpretation of materialism, his critique of the imperial criticist, even then he's in dialogue with an actual scientist and a philosopher of science of his time and developing his ideas through a dialogue with him.
0: Ernest Mach.
3: Yeah, Ernest Mach. And, you know, also with Bogdanov. Whereas Stalin here is just, you know, it's it's not comparable. And even then, Bad Text by Lenin still has his problems and, you know, it's interpretation dialectics, we could say. But at the same time, at least it tries to prove the utility of dialectics and why it matters and this really doesn't explain why dialectics really matters beyond this is why we have to develop the productive forces.
0: Well, that's it for this week. So... Stalin. Yeah. If we still have any Marxist-Leninist listeners left, let us know what you thought of this. And even if you're not a tanky, you can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, on Twitter at Swampside Chats, iTunes, and now Google Play and Stitcher, too. No word on Spotify, though. They're playing hardball. If you want to support the podcast, like and share all of the above, and check out our Patreon subscription options. You can get episodes early, listen to us record live, and even make us read something that we really don't want to read. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Oh, also... You could defend us from the onslaught of incensed 14-year-old anti-revisionists that try to purge us from the internet because we said bad things about Daddy Stalin in this episode. One last thing. Friend of the show and From Alpha to Omega host Tom O'Brien has started a close reading and discussion series on Andrew Kleiman's controversial Marxist economics book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital. Guests so far include Amog and Derek from Symptomatic Redness, Emmanuel from Enforlorod Sock, not to mention Rosa and myself. Since Amog, Derek, Rosa, me, and Mir from Enforlorod Sock have been on my other podcast called Emancipation pretty regularly, I'm going to be releasing this new series into the Emancipation podcast feed. You can also hear them on From Alpha to Omega and the Enforlorod Sock podcast feeds the best way to follow along is to have a copy of the book handy. The second best way is to look at the helpful YouTube video Tom posted on the From Alpha to Omega YouTube channel. Those YouTube channels sure seem handy. Really might want to set out one of those. Anyway, thanks for letting us chat your ear off with totalitarian ideology and self-promotion. As always, comrades, keep your boots clean. Yourself out of the gulag and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Well, that's it. What'd you think, Koba?